Dwight Little has directed studio movies for Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, and Columbia Pictures, and has also directed multiple independent movies with wide theatrical release. He has also directed three primetime television movies and 90 hours of network series television. And Dwight's new memoir, Still Rolling, Inside the Hollywood Dream Factory, as he takes readers along on a movie-making adventure that is by turns funny and brutally honest. And there are many on-set interactions with well-known producers and stars along with detailed descriptions of film shoots from the wilds of India to the banks of the River Kwai. Included are tales from the jails of Madrid to the jungles of Fiji and the Cold War streets of Budapest. The work connects the golden age of Hollywood to the highly successful premium television of today. Now, whether the reader is an aspiring filmmaker or just a movie lover, this book has it all, including a unique insight into television directing in the new streaming age. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome our esteemed guest, filmmaker Dwight Little, to the show. Welcome, Dwight. Good morning. It's nice to be here. You, you read that beautifully. Well, thank you so much. And I have to say, too, I read your book from cover to cover, and what a wild ride. And you didn't gloss it over, I will say that. <laughs> I wasn't too bad, was it? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I think you may have scared some up-and-coming filmmakers away. Well, but the ones that stick it out, they'll be ready, though. If they push through, they'll be ready. Well, they will. So, you know, right off the bat, why did you get into filmmaking? And you have to give me an, an answer more positive than Sidney Pollack gave you. <laughs> no, he was not too helpful. Uh, it wasn't, you know, I think I mentioned the boy, it was an early, early bug. It was like eighth grade Super 8 cameras. Um, I got fascinated with projecting images on the wall. So I was early into it. I was... Um, a little bit of the the yin of the yang of Steven Spielberg's Fablemans. I mean, I was a a young Super 8 filmmaker and then moved on and got an award at the local newspaper. And from that, I got a grant from the Ohio Arts Council. And then I got into a film school. So I, I got the bug early. You know, I love the fact that, uh, you know, when I hear people say, oh, yeah, started with... Uh, eight millimeter and uh, I have had the opportunity this year to go through and watch so many short films and one of them was shot on eight millimeter one really? was shot on 16 one on 35 and of course the rest of them were all using all of the new digital technology but you know uh, I when I was reading your book um, you kind of started off with Sandy Howard who yeah. heard about you by your short film, Americano. How important is making a short film for up-and-coming filmmakers? Well, it's kind of the key. It's kind of the opening of the door. And the key is what short film are you going to make? Is it going to be under the auspices of film school? Or are you going to scrape it together with your uncle's dry cleaning money? Or it's like, what? what is the short? And... What I keep saying is you just find what you have. Like if you have access to a 67 GTO, make a film about that. If you've got an old farmhouse, 
or an alley in your city. You got to find what you have and then write a script about that. If you know a neighbor who's a pretty good actor in the local community theater, get them because you're going to be judged on the script and the performance. Because like you mentioned, we've got these great cameras right on your iPhone. You can get a black magic for nothing. You know somebody who has a Canon or a black magic. These cameras are everywhere. So but you got to get script and performance and, and go from there. And you got to decide who you are. This is another point I make. You know, are you the rom-com guy? Are you the scary movie horror guy or gal? You know, like, what's your thing? What are you bringing to the party? You can't just, I don't know, it can't just be what you like. You have to, you have to have a brand. It's very important, even from your first short, I think. Well, yeah, I've talked to a lot of short film directors who, especially this year, some of their films came from something in their childhood. Uh, yeah. some, you know, they maybe they wrote a diary or had a journal and, and they pulled things out of that to create the film. And then others, they were just sitting around, had a one-line idea, and just ran with it. And, and I want to ask you, because since you were at the top of the list when it comes to working in Hollywood, uh, and you can be as careful as you want to answer this question, in this year's live-action short category, there's filmmakers who have been lucky enough to be Oscar-qualified, it's on their very, very first film. Right. Then there's the big major studios who spent a couple of million dollars on a film less than 20 minutes. What does the studio get out of it? I know what the up-and-coming filmmaker will get out of it if they get shortlisted or even get a nomination. But why would a studio waste their money on a short film? That's kind of a tough answer for me because never, I've never heard of it. I wish I had two million dollars to make a short film. I've never, I've never heard of that, honestly. Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe it's a, a DEI thing. Maybe it's part of that. Um, maybe it's part of their effort to be inclusive and develop new talent. I, I just don't know because I, ne I've never heard of it. I mean, a lot of people make shorts in in film school. You know, there's UCLA shorts, the NYU shorts, the USC shorts. Chapman, there's, you know, there's eight or 10 of the major ones now, Loyola, they make shorts. But I think, here's the thing, when you go into the room of the first meeting you have with a producer or a studio executive, why are they talking to you? I think everybody has to re-engineer this backwards. I don't care if your friends and your neighbors liked it. I don't care if the local critic at the paper liked it. It's like, who cares really about your childhood? I don't. You know, who cares about an idea you have for an alien movie? I don't. The, it's You've got to be brutal with yourself. Like, how dare you say, I want to be a movie director? Like, why you? What have you got that isn't out there already by the, you know, the bucket full. So sit on the other side of the desk and you come into the room and you sit down with your little story about how your parents got divorced or you broke up with your boyfriend or whatever it is. So, so I guess what I'm saying is this is my tough love version of what do you bring to the party 
that they don't already have 50 of. And that's the key. You know, Tarantino actually talks about this. Um, uh, and he, he says, you know, what is the movie that would never have been made unless you made it? Like, what is, what is that movie that only you made? And if you can't answer that question, what are you doing? So I, I'm a little bit harsh about this because I've seen, like you, I've seen thousands of short films and first features, you know, since my days at film school, 16 millimeter, 35, eight millimeter, digital, Betamax, <laughs> all of it. And the thing that stands out, I mean, you look, go back and look at Reservoir Dogs, and that's a first feature. But yes, the actors are great. Yes, the direction is there. It's that writing, you know, that made him, you know, a superstar. So same with Robert Rodriguez, who I've worked for, you know, and he, he, he famously sold blood to raise money for El Mariachi and shot it down in Texas on a road, you know, with a bunch of friends. But he had a point of view, he had a vision, and he had something that no one else was doing. And um, so there's a guy who didn't go to film school. He's got an empire down there in Austin now. Yeah, well, I know. And um, because with, with Tarantino and then Rodriguez, it's almost like they stand barely outside the line of Hollywood. They make their I own rules. They, well, they both do. Yeah, you're right. You know, I remember a few years ago, uh, my television director and I were in Austin. We were we were uh, working on this piece uh, with this blues guitarist, and and my director goes, "Hey, you know Rodriguez's place is here in town." So <clears throat> we actually tracked it down, went down this road, drove up to the gate. You know, of course, it's chained and locked, but we just kind of sat there and went, "Man, we're we're sitting here in front of Rodriguez's gate." That was great for us. <laughs> well, that's Troublemaker Studios. And Troublemaker's on the end of, like you say, it's kind of out at the end of a weird road. And I did, I think, four episodes of a thing he was doing called Dust Till Dawn, a TV series. And, you know, Robert's got stages in there. He's got props. He's got wardrobe. He's got transpo. He's got AD. He's got accounting. He's got post. It's a studio. It's a full-on studio. And the great thing about to work for Robert Rodriguez is he doesn't micromanage his directors. If he hires you, you know, it's that old thing. you got enough rope to hang yourself. So just you better deliver because he's not going to tell you how to do it, but you better figure it out. Well, that was the thing about your book. I'm reading along, you know, you're, you're bringing up, you go from the very beginning. And you walk us through every step. And I'm sitting there page after page thinking, this is not glamorous. No. This isn't glossy. And of course, you're writing during a time before the digital age was ever even thought of. Right. I mean, you know, how many feet of film are you shooting a movie with and, and having to go into the editing room? And I mean, you, and then dealing with, the pencil pushers sitting in a conference room with a bunch of people that in reality 
only care about money and have no clue what it takes to make a film. Well, first of all, let me let me interrupt you there. Yeah, it's all it's only about money. The art is a is a repercussion. It's an echo. It's the second thing. It's all about money. It's like TV is about money. Features are about money. What's ha- the, the SAG actors are screaming about money. The writers are screaming about money. The studios say they don't have any money. It's all about money. And you have to get that into your head early on, unless you're doing it as an artist, like, a, you know, kind of a, a, an avocation, like you're, you're going to show it at the local museum or the local art institute. Meanwhile, you're a mortgage broker by day, but you have a passion for film and you make artistic films. I mean, that's great. And I embrace that. But if you're having the arrogance to say, I want to pay my light bill and my car payment and my mortgage because I make movies, you've got to get real very early. And I think, you know, I talk about that in the book as well. You got to figure out the money. I bet you better be a great bartender early on. <laughs> well, you know, why did you why did you decide to write this book now? That's, that's a great question. I um, one of my free Willie producers, uh, Jenny Tugan, um, she was teaching at UCLA, and um, she invited me down to do like a couple like guest le- lectures in the evening. And I went down to these big lecture halls at UCLA and they were packed. Now, not because of me, it's just there's so much interest in meeting with and talking to working filmmakers. And I, well, it was like 45 minutes and I didn't begin to answer the question these people had. Young, bright, enthusiastic, interested men, women. Of, by the way, it's UCLA, so for, they're from all over the world. And, and uh, so I thought, you know, I don't have, I don't think the patience to really teach. A lot of people do teach, but I'm too, I'm a little too irreverent, I think, to sit in the faculty lounge. <laughs> but um, I thought if I write this all down in the book, maybe it could be helpful. So I thought I should put, you know, I should start writing this down. That's, that's kind of how it sprung up. Well, what, what I loved about the book and the way you tell the story. You know, there's a difference between being being idealistic and being realistic. And for anybody that wants to work in television, in film, even the music industry, it's fine to be idealistic because you have this dream. And that dream is at point B. But the line between A and B is where realism comes in. And you have to prepare that that road is not going to be a straight line. I would, I would, I would correct what you're saying for a little bit. Yeah. And that, that is to say, I don't think it's fine to be idealistic. I don't. I think that's a pipe dream. and It doesn't do anybody any good. It doesn't help your parents. It doesn't help your children. It doesn't help anybody. You can, you get realistic early. Get something going. Get a name for yourself. My rule was no commercials and no pornography. That was my only 
I got those are the only two things. I had a political reason why I didn't do, want to do commercials because I, I felt that I was a young man, of course, but I, I felt it was destroying the culture. So that was kind of my, that was my idealism. And then I don't want to be involved in, you know, the, the low life of pornography it just doesn't interest me. So anything else, you know, an educational film, a student, I'll shoot whatever you want, a second unit, main unit, anything. But get something going and then start becoming idealistic. When you have three scripts on your desk, there's a firm offer on all three. Then pick the one that fits your dream the best. But but that choice is later. So my thing is you don't get to be idealistic. You get to be ambitious. You get to be passionate about filmmaking and eat it and breathe it and live it and all that. But idealism is, see, this, this story has been sold over and over again. This, the Joe Campbell, you know, follow your bliss. This, this is sold at package generation after generation. And, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, I think, had it right when asked this question. He said, you follow your skill. It will lead to your, uh, your bliss. Follow your skill. What do you like? You know, are you a math major? Are you a, you have the voice of an angel? Do you have, are you a martial arts expert? I don't know. Like, what is your skill? And you go follow your skill. It will lead you to the dream. You, you can't go backwards. Anyway, you can't dream of being playing in the major leagues if you can't pitch, right? You just can't. That's excellent advice. And when you got handed your first feature film to direct, did it scare you? First of all, I want to correct you again. <laughs> 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 uh, it was not handed to me. All right. I fought for like a mad dog. Okay, so nothing will ever get handed to you. So I just want to, I mean, I'm not trying to be a jerk. No, 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 I completely understand because in, no. in this industry, no nothing hand is handed to you. No. All right. Anyway, when I had that opportunity, finally, what, what was your question? Was well, I scared? You know, when... When you directed your first feature film, uh, did it scare you? The reason it didn't is because I have always had confidence. I don't know where it comes from. Um, I'm a little bit full of myself. And here's, here's why you have to be. Because if there's 20 people in the room, they all want the job. If you can't elbow them out of the way to get it, then you're, what's the point? So you're going, you're going to have to have a little bit of an ego. And you can't work with a major movie star and then be offended that they're a narcissist. It's like, well, of course they are. They're an international movie star. It's like, that's who's there. Or a politician, right? Or um, everybody's shocked, you know, that these people who achieve at that level you know, have huge egos. Well, don't be shocked. That's how they're who they are. So I showed up on set and I felt like 
at that moment. Now, by then I was 28. So I had made films, short films, documentaries, student films. So I, I wasn't, you know, plus I'd been to USC film school. So I did feel pretty confident. I, I was ready to go. You bring up something in your book that I thought was was excellent to bring up. And and, and it, it kind of goes with part of your answer, where many of today's actors, even actors that uh, for the past 40, 50 years, there's narcissism, there's ego, but they have to because of, well, that's how you get the point across in film. But when you're on set, you made a statement in your book that when you work with actors, it's all manipulation. What do you mean by that? Well, you can't tell them the result that you want. In other words, you can't say, I need you to be sad and cry. I need you to be hysterically funny because it cracks you up or whatever. You cannot give an actor a result. You have to give them a situation that's organic and that's believable. I think I mentioned in the book, you know, your father just died. You can't talk about it at work. You can't talk about it all day. You get home, something comes on the radio that reminds you of him and, you know, the floodgates open. You have to set up like what's happening so that the actor can get where you want him or her to get without them think they're, think they're being told. It's essential because actors don't want to be told how to do their job. They don't forget when, when you, by the time you get to set, they've read the text, they've rehearsed it, they've learned the lines. So they've gone over it and over it and over it. And they have a point of view already about their take on the character. So all that's been done. And if you want to redirect them in another way, you better have a very good reason and plan for what you're doing. Um, now, there are a few actors, and they're funny people, who will say, Dwight, just tell me what you want. I don't give a shit. Don't give me all that. I don't care about my backstory. Just tell me what you want. There are people like this, very few but there are dreams to work with. And some of them are the top, top people. You know, they don't, because they've heard all the, the bullshit, right? Ryan O'Neill, a good example. I mean, he was a major internet, major movie star. And I'm talking to Ryan and I'm saying, now Ryan, you know, here's the situation and the thing and the gang in the jail and this is what he must be feeling doing this whole thing. And he's looking at me like, what the fuck do you want? Just tell me. And he's not being mean. It's just, I've been doing this for 50 years, just, or 40 years. Just give me, tell me the result. And then they're, they're so good that on the next take, they nail it. Just because they're that good. Alan Alda, this guy's unbelievable. You don't have to work with Alan Alda. He's gonna he's gonna be ninety percent of the way there, and you might just you know shift it a little bit. So I, you, you got to play it to the individual, but try not to just tell an actor what your end result is. I guess that's a long-winded answer. Well, no, because I love the I love the fact that 
the way that you work with actors and the way that you explained it in the book, um, you are never looking for trouble. Uh, you are always trying to find a way to get the result. And right. one of the, the one of the stories I thought was kind of funny, and, and you can tell it, is when you did Murder at sixteen hundred, which I actually love that movie, and okay. and then Wesley Snipes is late to the set, and but then you 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 handled it extremely well, and you got what you wanted. And I'll let you finish that. Well, the, the, the one thing about Wesley was, I think he had a, a big disappointment in his career on another movie while we were making Murder at 1600. He made this big Robert De Niro movie called The Fan, which the late, great Tony Scott directed. And the expectations for this movie was going was to put him on the A-list for good. And the movie belly flopped. And I think he was shaken. There was also an issue at that time with Wesley and the people around him, which I'm not afraid to talk about. He had a lot of people from the Nation of Islam who were his security detail and his confidants and a lot of people. And there was, there was um, tension. And uh, with... You know, with me and with the DP and other people, I don't happen to be Jewish, but there were a lot of people that were, and there was tension. I know we're not supposed to talk about these things. No, no, no it's fine because it's in the book. Yeah, it's in the book, and and um, I actually ended up trying to find out by talking to Wesley's driver and his stunt people, like what's going on, like something's going on with Wesley because he wasn't like this for the first two or three weeks we would talk and we would engage in typical director actor dialogue and we were working together you know we weren't going to be best friends but we were working together and then all of a sudden it changed i asked people what was going on and then i ended up working with his stunt coordinator and and double and i started to work with him and then he would relay things to wesley and for whatever reason Wesley was comfortable with that line of communication. And of course, I've never had to do anything quite that around the block again. But I was willing to do it because I needed to keep the movie going. I didn't want to call the studio. Uh, we had one day, you know, where I think I mentioned Arnold Copelson showed up on set. And I don't know if people remember him, but it, in his day, he was at the top of the food chain. The Fugitive, Platoon, Seven. I mean, he was a, an old school, cigar smoking, big time producer. And he came to our set and he sat down in a chair and he sat there all day. Didn't say a word and everybody behaved. So it was like having the adult he came down and he sat in the room he didn't talk to Wesley, didn't really talk to me, except good morning, have a good day. That's about all he said. But I'm telling you, it was unbelievable. It's just the exercise of power. I mean, people who have power and know how to exercise it without lording it over people, it's incredible. Well, 
because of murder at 1600, somebody else had a lot of power that started lording over people. And you kind of ran into this situation uh, unknowingly, per se, when Clint Eastwood was also doing a White House movie. Yeah, the White House. And, really, yeah. I, yeah, I was aware of it. Um, I was aware that they had actually scouted some of the same stages in Toronto. They decided to build their Oval Office here. I think it were in Hollywood. We were aware of the movie Absolute Power. Uh, I don't think he was aware of us. Um, I mean, he was Clint Eastwood and Gene Hackman. We were like a little Wesley Snipes movie. And But I was promised over and over and over again that we were coming out in January which is considered like a graveyard for studio releases. January is like the dumping ground. And it was like, look, you know, we want to make our money and we're going to have a great DVD sale. They knew what they, we were kind of the, the lesser cousin. But then we went out and tested the movie. And the movie, and Bob Daly, who was the head of Warner Brothers, was there. And the movie tested great. So somebody talked to the, somebody at Malpaso, Clint's company, and they got, now, listen, if I was Clint Eastwood, I would have done the exact same thing. So I have no beef with him because I would have done the same thing. It's like, I'm going to protect my movie, right? It, it's all, it's every man for himself. It's like, I don't have to extend the courtesy to Dwight Little and Wesley Snipes. So, so they did what they promised they would never do which is they bumped our movie to come out behind Absolute Power. So we looked like a copycat. We looked like, oh, and literally every review was like, just like, you know, last month's Absolute Power, dot, dot, dot. And it was devastating because I'm, I don't know. I, I was aware of it from the beginning. And, and uh, you know, but that's, I guess, my naivete. That's on me. Well, you know, the thing is, is when I read that whole story in your book, and I'm thinking, okay, I've seen Absolute Power. I've seen Murder at 1600. And I just, and for me as the audience, I just put them side by side and I go, one's not better than the other. They're yeah. both entertaining. They're both great movies. And I don't really think the audience even cared if both of them were shot at the White House or a White House no. set. It was all the pencil pushers and the marketers bringing all that crap up. Yeah, it was um, it was too bad. I um, <laughs> I think my movie's better, but <laughs> that's okay. I that's of course I do. Um, but I I felt absolute power wasn't really the setup. I thought wasn't believable. I just thought really. A second story jewel? I don't know. Anyway, uh, I um, but it was it was it was bad for us. Let's say it was it was a real thing, and I certainly bear no. He doesn't know me, Clint Eastwood, but it's like he did what I would do the same thing. Yeah. Well, either way, Murder at sixteen Murder at sixteen hundred is a very good film to watch. I enjoyed it. Still do. And you also told. A, a time where you were on set, you were directing a film, and and I love this because you said every filmmaker should try to nourish his vision 
as it's vital to the success of the movie. Close your eyes, play the movie cut for cut, and the rest is details. How has that helped you throughout your career? Well, it's the confidence thing that I was talking about earlier. It's like I've walked on set, maybe 150, 200 people standing around. And, you know, until the, until the director gets there in the morning, having had his breakfast sandwich, it's no one knows what to do. It's just, you know, there's great gaffers and great DPs and prop people. These people are the top of their field, right? But without what I call the vision, it's, it's just like, you know, at loose ends. So when, you, when you've cut that day's work in your head, you've seen the shots, not only what shots you're going to get, but how the scene's going to play. And it's in your head. Then when you walk on set, in a sense, you've already done it. I mean, you have to make a, a accommodations for blocking changes and lighting changes and all that. But you can go up to the first AD who walks up to you. You you know, you're usually a little early. He says, okay, what are we doing? And you're like, okay, first shot's over here. I need 15 extras back there. I need our hero to walk A to B here. We're going to have a dialogue here. I need a limo crane. I need a techno crane. I need two dollies, two long lenses. And this is what we're doing. And we're doing this first. And we'll be ready to rehearse in a half hour. Now, he's the sergeant, right? He's the man. He's boots on the ground. Now he's got it, right? And he gets all this going. So each department is now on the move and the actors are in the chair and they bring them out still with their hair up in curlers and their makeup things on. They come out early and we, we run the scene and block it and they complain and we work it out. And then when we all agree, then we, I mean, maybe I'm getting too much in the weeds here, but then we mark the scene. They literally, each actor has to do his moves and they mark it with tape. Then they go back to, to continue their makeup and hair to get ready. Now the second team of the stand-ins come in. And the stand-ins have been watching and studying all morning so that they can replicate exactly where the actors went and on what line. And sometimes the, the stand-ins will say the lines. So now the camera operators and the lighting people, they, they set it up all with the with the, with the stand-ins. And then the first team comes back and everybody looks real pretty and everybody's ready to go and we're lit and the cameras are ready and now we start shooting. So another long-winded answer, you got to have it in your mind when you get out of the car in the morning. It's already done in your head. That, I guess it's, that's what I mean by playing it in your mind. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, to me, I look at this interview with you, Dwight, as a filmmaker's interview. You know, I interview so many film directors and producers, and, you know, some of them give us that behind-the-scenes look on how certain things are done. That's why your book is such an amazing read. I mean, okay. even when you explain that, that time when you're, you're doing this movie— and there's a train scene. And then you find out that the train can is not even allowed to leave 
the station or the platform because they closed off a section of the track, you know, about a half a mile or so away. And you, and you only have so much time because this is the only time you can shoot this scene. Can't come back another day. Too much money's involved. But then you explain how you created the same thought in your head, your vision, by having the train not leave the platform, but the, but the audience, when they see the movie, thinks it did. Well, we were counting on that train pulling out. <laughs> And we had, you know, prepped it and we had this great camera thing in mind and, you know, we were counting on it. And so when we found out that train that night wasn't moving, it was devastating. But I had years before done this crazy little movie in India uh, called Bloodstone and had had the same problem. And I remembered a, a solution. It's an old school silent movie uh, solution which is with relative motion, if, if the camera's moving or the train's moving, the audience has no way to know which is which, as long as there's not got, you know, a, a, a phone booth or something that should be moving that's not. So I set up this long dolly track and just created a very fluid camera move that then, that then panned and then pulled away from the, uh, from the actor who was waving goodbye. And, then we had steam put in, and then with the right sounds, the air brakes and all that, it was perfect. You just have to have those quick solutions in your head uh, so that you can live to fight another day, really. <laughs> you know, you ended up directing Halloween 4. Right. And I love the way you explain this whole story, the whole scenario, how everything happened. For you, what was your reaction to seeing that long line of people standing outside the theater to see Halloween 4 on opening night? Well, that was one of those, you know, you, we just couldn't believe it. I mean, we had made this little picture up in, in Utah. Now, don't forget everybody, and I mean everybody told me not to do this. It's like the agents, the managers, my girlfriend, everybody. It's like this is the the fourth movie of a dead slasher franchise. They're, they're going to think you're ripping off John Carpenter. You're going to get This is a terrible idea. But I had a feeling about it. I can't explain it any other way. I just, I, you, I wouldn't call that idealism. I would call it confidence. I had a feeling that that movie could work if I did it my way. And uh, when I pitched it to Mustafa Akkad, who was like the, the sort of the, the grandfather of the whole series, you know, he, he was involved from the beginning all the way until his very tragic, untimely death. Um, I didn't pitch him a movie that I thought he wanted to buy. Like, I didn't try and pitch, I pitched him what I was actually going to do. Because I thought if he didn't want to do this, then he could just pass on my a take, and then I wouldn't have to worry about it. I think part of it was, since everybody told me it was such a bad idea, I thought, well, maybe it's better if I don't get this job. You know how you can have confidence? Like, you can only negotiate if you can afford to lose. That's the old 
right? If, if the car dealer won't take your two grand, you have to be willing to walk away or, or you can't negotiate. So, but when I, I pitched him what I really wanted to do and he got on board with that. So, cause I wanted to do a, an escaped killer movie, not a slasher movie. And so I did the whole thing like a, Silence of the Lambs movie rather than a Friday the 13th movie. So I had a whole thing in my head. To answer your question, we were thrilled. And not only that, when we got into the theater, people were screaming. And it was it was intoxicating. That is an idealistic moment. You know, that is a moment where the dream did, at least on that Friday night, the dream did come true. Well, see, I like suspense more than I like slasher. Right. And that's what we leaned into on Halloween 4. And that's why that movie, people still really enjoy that movie. It was a big movie for me. It was a real game changer. Yeah, I was talking to a uh, an up-and-coming filmmaker. And we, we got on the discussion of using actual film, because he used 16 millimeter, versus doing the same work with digital and he had some night and he had some nighttime scenes and and i in his take on the two he says it's for him it was based on shadows so your your halloween four kind of brings this thought into my head with film the black has a tendency to dance because of the grain of the film digital it's just there it's flat it doesn't move but with film the audience may not know it, but their senses know, and it seems to build up the suspense even more if you're shooting the film. Am I getting that even close to being right? Yes, but, I mean, I can go down the rabbit hole with you about film and digital for three hours, and, you know, grain and all that, but your up-and-coming filmmaker shouldn't even be thinking about this. It doesn't matter. What his blacks look like at night don't matter. What matters is this, who the actor is, what he's saying is, is the scene working. Now, the knowledge about what palette he wants to use, what stock he wants to use, whether it's digital or he wants to shoot emulsion or reversal or whatever he wants, that's like, he should know that as a matter of course. like. If he's talking about that, he's having the wrong conversation. Now, this is just one man's opinion, okay? That's not the conversation. The con I mean, the DP should be having that conversation. The conversation is, what is this scene about? Is it funny, suspenseful? Is it sexy? Is it dangerous? What's the scene? Are these actors delivering this scene? Is the dialogue, should we rewrite it? Is the dialogue popping? Is it servicing the scene? Is it Is it playing? I keep using this expression, does it play? I don't care what the blacks look like. I don't care, you know, the, it's gonna be, it better be great. Like you better by now know how to do that, right? Make it look great. Because you've got gaffers and you've got operators and you've got DPs plus You've obviously given them your marching orders. I want this to look like Michael Clayton. I don't want it to look like three men and a baby, right? You've, you've, you've given them their marching orders. 
But I see student filmmakers, including my own son, uh, I keep reprimanding him. They get bogged down in in the toys. Oh, I've got, I saw this, you know, this handheld camera and it's got the bungee cord and I can do this and I can do this and I can get it, I can rent it. Or I found this new slider and it's so cool. Nobody cares. Nobody, we're bombarded with visual images, right? Because of what you spoke about, because of where, where is it there? <laughs> because of this. We're just overwhelmed with, with images. So the image has been a little bit devalued because there's just so much of it. Yeah, um, the toy the toys get in the way. And I liked how you explain when you ended up with certain situations on a film set. And you ha- you have the plan where you want to film it in a particular way with a particular equipment or whatever. But then there's a there's a situation that arises where you can't do that. And then you start using what I would call very old, uh, classic, old school filming techniques that still work today. And to me, that is an education that I think today's new filmmakers need to go back and learn. Well, the, some of this old stuff works great. I mean... You know, I think I mentioned a guy getting shot with an arrow, you know, that I, I I got this old cowboy trick from some guy on the set. It worked fantastic. And I used it later in an episode of a TV show called Bones when all the CGI people and all the visual effects people were sitting there telling me they needed six more hours. And I said, everybody leave, just leave. You know, it's like I can, I can fix this in 12 seconds because I knew how to do it from another movie, um, or I couldn't get a dumb, I couldn't get a good dummy, so we took a little IMO camera and threw it out a window. It wasn't how I was planning to do the scene, but it looked pretty cool. Of course, you gotta know what an IMO camera is. See, that's the thing. So you do all your homework and you know all your stuff so that when you have to you know, improvise, you, you've got, um, this library. That's why you have to just do it over and over again. You know, the whole 10,000 hours idea. And I think it's true, like, whether you're a figure skater or a film director, the more you do it, the more... That's why you can't be so picky about what you're doing. The more you do it, the better you get. It's, it's human nature. Well, yeah, and you've done... You've done film, you've done television. And the old saying was, oh, yeah, yeah, if you do film, don't ever step down and do television. But for you, both of them have been successful. Well, I was, re- I was nervous about making that move into television. <clears throat> but honestly, I was in movie jail. I was in trouble. So it wasn't that brave a move for me. Um, to get into television because I needed to put food on the table. Now, the timing happened to be that when I got into television, it was it was now starting because this was right around when HBO was really putting things like The Sopranos together. And that was the, there were two game changers. That was the first one. 
I mean, obviously in the 90s, we'd had the X-Files and we'd had some terrific, including, you know, Millennium and stuff that I did, but we had some great television. But I think it was The Sopranos on HBO that kind of suddenly television wasn't television anymore. It was just, it was like The Sopranos. And then when Kevin Spacey did House of Cards for Netflix for a streaming show with David Fincher directing, that blew that whole thing wide open. And so by the time I was in television, it, it grew. I, I, and the more I did it, everybody wanted to be in television. So I got in just, just before the flood. And it was, so that was great timing on my part because I was doing the practice, which won Emmys and Prison Break, which got, you know, these were big attention getting oh, shows. Oh, Prison Break was probably the first series that I ever binged watch. And I mean, even when it ended, literally, I think the whole nation was like, can you freaking make some more episodes because nobody wanted that series to end no it was kind of a game changer and it was um the chemistry between wentworth and dominic and um the look of it and the intensity of it uh, it was it was quite something now that was on fox i mean that was on network television but it had a cable vibe about it and uh <clears throat> i did a movie for tnt and this is when they were spending $8 million on a TV movie. Now, today, that's unheard of. But TNT had a three-year or four-year window where they were making these big, uh, showy TV movies. Um, I kind of I miss that. They don't do that anymore. I did one with Chaz Palminteri called Boss of Bosses about Paul, uh, Paul Castellano and the New York mob. And... You know, $8 million then, that's like $18 million now. So, but those, those TV movies, well, now it's really, all about limited series. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when I think about Prison Break, I think about all of the series that came out after that, especially going into streaming. I mean, when I think of Prison Break, now I think of like when The Walking Dead was really good. Yeah, uh-huh. You know, <clears throat> Walking Dead to me just kind of ended a few years ago. I mean, they, it's it's like being a dead horse. I'm like, just let it go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to me, Grey's Anatomy should have never lasted 20 years. But that that's my opinion. But for you, was there a difference directing a film star versus a TV star? Yes, there really is <laughs> um, <laughs> a big difference. I'll explain why I think that is. Um, the film star knows that the reason you're there is because the studio decided you should be there. So that means either you've had a success or you've had a hit movie or uh, they, there's some reason they hired you, right? The director and the director's hired before the star generally. So already it's like you're kind of baked in. There's a reason the head of the studio wants you there, number one. And number two, you're gonna be in the cutting room for 12 weeks and then in post, which means you control every take, 
every edit, every choice of performance there is. And the film star knows this because there's, here's the thing about movie actors, especially stars. They're, they're smart people and they're really knowledgeable and do not underestimate why they are who they are, right? You don't want to try to outsmart George Clooney about filmmaking. You just don't want to because, you know, but they know what happens in the cutting room. So if they're going to go to war with you, they know that they're going to be gone onto their next movie and you're going to be in the cutting room with their face and their voice for 10 or 12 weeks. So that's the second thing. So you have a little bit more baked in authority on a film set. Um, also, we have a cultural tradition that a film director is running the set and the writers, at least on my film set, we're not even there. I mean, they're just not even there. They're long gone. Now, the producers are often there, but not the writer. Now, in television, you are a guest. It is the showrunner's party. It is the writer's party. And that actor, the, the lead of that show or actress, is there for 22 episodes. They will see 8 or 10 or 12 directors in the course of those 22 episodes. So we come and go like cannon fodder, like, okay, who's the guy, who's this week's director, or, you know, this episode's director. So they, they're there and they have all the power. And you know what? Maybe rightly so, because they're the face of the TV show. Uh, the one I got along with so great, I'll mention is uh, David Boyanis. You know, he was, on Bones for 12 years, so was Emily Deschanel. They are Bones, those two. And the, the showrunner, Hart Hansen, was there for 12 years. That's their show. Now, I come in and I do everything I can to make my episode as good as I can. But I'll be gone, and they'll still be there. So it's, it's the absolute flip in terms of the power and authority. And if the two stars want to get it, you never get fired from television. You just don't get invited back. That's how it goes. Well, if a television series has different directors within a season, how do they keep the look of the show consistent from week to week? Because the production designer, the DP, the cast, the sets, and the writers are all the same. So they kind of hold the feel and the tone of it together. And then when you go in as a director, you want to fit into what they're doing and you want to execute what they're doing. Um, and so you use your professional skills to do the best you can, but it's not yours. My example is on this subject is like being a lawyer. So if you go to law school and decide to be a lawyer and then say, you know, the only cases I want to take are the really righteous causes. I'm going to do those cases. No, you're a lawyer. You're going to have to defend the serial killer too. And you're going to have to defend the, the wife abuser, whatever it is. Because what you're going to do is you're going to apply your professional skill set as a lawyer to the case that you have without judging your your client 
Now, with the director, I'm going to give you the best episode of Nikita I can possibly give you. I'm not going to tell you that Nikita is better or worse than Prison Break or better or worse than uh, Sleepy Hollow. I, I'm not. In, I'm not judging that. But I will give you my professional best. Does that make sense? Yes. It, it, it's just you're a prof you're a pro. Um, you can't sit in judgment of the client <laughs> unless it's a commercial, which I don't do. Well, being a being a film director, you have to deal with money people, the studio people, producers. Everyone has an opinion about every part of a production of a movie. How much say does the director have in the end? On a film? Yeah, and and when do you ignore all the noise and go with your gut? All the time. <laughs> you have to, I mean, look, you can't ever be an asshole about it, right? And you have to respect, especially respect people whose experience you respect, right? But even from people who, you, you have to do your own thing no matter what, even if you're going to get fired. And I have been fired, by the way. But um, not very often, thankfully. Was that was that Monty Walsh? Yeah, yeah. I did get my ass kicked to the curb. But I think there was a political uh, element to that, too. But um, I was doing Free Willy 2, and the executive producer, I think this is in the book, was a man I admired beyond the moon and back, a guy named Richard Donner, you know, who... You know, the Omen, Superman, Lethal Weapon, Maverick, you know, it just doesn't stop. He was one of one of the greats. And he was on my set being an executive producer, not bothering me. But I started to get these people saying, well, you know, maybe you should shoot it this way. And I was starting to get notes. And um, I didn't do them. Not because I was trying to be a jerk, and certainly not because I disrespected Richard Donner, who can do no wrong. But he was wrong about this. <laughs> he was just wrong about this, because it wasn't his film, so I was more, you know, baked into it. And the tools that he was suggesting that I use were not the right tools for what I was trying to accomplish. So I just nodded and just went about my business. And you know what? He's way too experienced not to respect that. In other words, instead of stomping his heels and saying, he won't listen to me, and he's like, okay, I get it. So is it risky? A little, you know. You can get into trouble. But they, they want a director, right? That's why they hired you. They want a point of view. I hope not so much with the the um, MCU kind of movies. I've never directed one of those, but I know a lot of people who have or have AD'd on them, and that is more like television. That's a bit like a committee because they're protecting the universe, right? They're protecting a whole arc. I I did Agents of Shield, the TV show, and I got a little taste of that Marvel universe and there's so many executives and so many people it and it's all about the marvel of it all so you are kind of a 
at best a part of a team uh, on a movie. Like if you if you're gonna make Aquaman, I mean, I, I know James Wan; he's a good director, but um, you're not really making a James Wan movie. You're making uh, I forget if that's DC or Marvel. I get them confused, but you know, you're making Aquaman too. <laughs> There's certain expectations for what that has to be like. So, but in a traditional sense, you, you, you have to have your point of view and, and just be polite, be respectful, but you, you can't just listen to everybody. No, and that makes complete sense. And, you know, now we have, you know, the, the film industry is, is just completely different. Um, there's so many different studios distribution arms, the list goes on. For you, what's the main advantage of doing, let's say, an independent film versus a studio film production? Well, it's just the best. I did one with uh, Robert Patrick, Heather Graham, Bruce Davison, John Hurd, a nice little movie called Last Rampage. And I was out in Newhall, California, and I turned to uh, my AD, who I'd been with for a while, because we had finished something, uh, we'd finish, and I turned around literally to check and make sure that it was okay with the studio before I moved because I've been so, you know, browbeaten and conditioned. And I turned around and I just suddenly realized, wait a minute, there's no adults here. <laughs> it's just like, we'll just do whatever we want. And what's liberating about that is you can make decisions that fit the scene you're doing and not have it second-guessed by anybody. Now, you don't have the budget, you don't have the time, you don't have the, the support of a studio. But in a way, you're kind of free. It's, it's, it's an interesting trade-off. Well, why is being in the editing room working on a director's cut heaven to you? Because all the noise has gone, right? All the problems are gone, all the complaints, all the cold nights all the you know the difficulties of shooting a movie have all vanished and you're there with one editor who presumably you get along great with and it's just you and your movie it's like heaven and they can't look because of the director's guild they can't look at your cut until you're more or less ready so you have this one window where it's just you and the film that you've shot and you can assemble it. Now they can hate it or love it, but at that one moment, it's just you and your film. It's just, it's just magic. Well, what was your learning curve as a director of filming elements for a live action video game for Sega? Uh, off the chart learning curve. <laughs> I, I didn't, I was saved because my writing partner, Alan McElroy, who had written Halloween four and rapid fire, who I brought in on uh, Ground Zero, he kind of had a brain for it. He, he's just more, there's a lot of math involved, as you can imagine, figuring out the variables of who gets shot and how they, you know, get undead or blow up or whatever the, the choice is. And he was pretty good at it. And so he wrote a script in a way that I could execute it I can't say I ever really understood it, but I but he gave me enough that I could 
sued it. And then we turned it all over to the geniuses up in Silicon Valley. And then they, you know, they created the video game in their, in their world. Um, we just, our job, we just had to get them everything they needed. That was a wild experience. Well, is, um, that, is that directing a bunch of people with the little white things all over their bodies wearing a, a green screen suit? Yeah, some of that for sure. Um, but also, it's all about, um, how do I say it? It's, it's like about the, the branches, you know, what, what is it in, in, uh, in sports, you know, where you see the branching? Uh, oh, like, uh, end, like the final end. four. Like a final yeah, like the grid, the, I don't know. I just call it the grid. <laughs> so imagine there's there's a choice that the hero can make, the shooter in a in a point and shoot game. He can make one of let's say eight choices, you know, in terms of how to kill the alien or the monster, whatever. Ah, so, the bracket. So, they call it the bracket. Bracket. So so it's bracket filmmaking. It's that's exactly right. Brackets. So you have to shoot all eight brackets so that the computer guys when the player makes a choice the computer guy can give them one of the eight bracket alternatives so this is crazy but you have to know what it is so you could shoot him and he could just die you could shoot him he could turn out to be a civilian and you committed murder you could shoot him and he could blow up you could shoot him and he comes back at you as a full alien. You could shoot just his arm off. I mean, there's like, and it was all written, the eight uh, bracket choices. So if you can imagine, the script looked like a document from NASA is what the script looked like. Um, but we did it and they, they seemed to get what they, they were very happy with it. It was pretty different way of thinking. You know, your book is such a fascinating read. I think, no. I mean, movie lovers need to read it. Up and coming filmmakers need to read it. But, you know, we had three strikes this year, but the DGA wasn't really a strike. But you make a statement in your book, which I thought was very interesting. And you wrote, I've often wondered where the unions are in all of this. Why can't they protect their own members? Would you like to elaborate? Well, yes, because I'm I'm at this wonderful point of life where I don't really care. So, because <laughs> I get into trouble all the time. But here's the thing: um, my father ran a small machine tool shop, like sixty guys, right? And it was a union shop. And they had, you know, lunches and eight hours. And if there was any overtime, it was very careful. It was time and a half. And then they protected people's turnaround, just like in the movies. And I think to myself now, if a standard day for one of those welders, let's say, was to show up for a 7 a.m., be there for 14 hours with a half-hour a meal break, which they didn't even get credit for, leave at 9 or 9.30 at night to turn around and be back at 7 the next morning. And, and then knowing you had at least a half an hour commute, and in L.A. it's closer to an hour, no matter where you live. 
if this had been like a routine day, what we used to call, well, now they've gotten it down a little bit. It used to be 13, 14 hours was standard. I remember doing a show in New York. It was one of the Law and Order shows. We were doing 13, 14 hour days all the time. So I have a perspective coming from a family that ran a business. And this would never, ever in a million years have been allowed. I don't care if you pay them double or triple or quadruple overtime. It would have been illegal. There's no way. But for some reason in the movie business, you can have a key grip show up at seven and keep them until 9.30 and have them come back the next morning, or worse, by the way, sometimes till 10, and they just pay them off, right? And so now those technicians are making so much money that it becomes a drug. So, so now you've got not only the house in, in Simi Valley, now you've got a boat in the driveway, right? And now you've got the second motorcycle. It's, it's very uh, addictive. Because you're making crazy money because half of your day is double or triple time. But it's so dangerous because everybody's exhausted. People drive home tired. Everybody's in a divorce or a separation. Everybody. That's all I talk about. So you lose half the money in the end anyway. And I just thought... Okay, all these unions talk about protecting their workers. Well, where are you with saying, it's better now, I have to say, and say, look, this it should be 10 hours should be tops. I mean, in America, it's an eight-hour day, right? A 10-hour day would be considered an overtime day in any job in America, even working for Tesla or just pick a company. Eight hours is, you know, the standard. Over that, you get paid overtime. But you're talking 60, 70, 80-hour weeks. And it always made me mad because don't, you know, why are you coming to me and telling me how great you are as a union when, when this is going on? I never understood why the DJ wasn't tougher about it. Um, and the answer is what we talked about at the beginning is money. That's the answer. I don't. I'm not going to get. In, I don't want to get into that whole AI thing. That's a whole discussion for another day. But a lot of people on the actor side during the strike, a lot of the fight was over the residuals from streaming. But then Good they come back that. and say, "Oh, we got forty million dollars for the three-year contract," and I'm like, "That's pennies on residual." You know, I you know I would talk to recording artists where. You know, the big joke is, well, it's not really a joke. It's actually a plus. You know, there used to be a lot of mailbox money, the royalties that would come in. Oh, listen, and, I've been the beneficiary of that. Yeah, and there's and there's really no such thing now. Well, you're right about the $40 million or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a nonsensical number. Um, I think what you're seeing now is that the they're they're canceling all these shows after two years, one year, two years. They're just canceling them because they don't want to pay uh, residuals. So you, you know that great expression, unintended consequences. Um, when people built all that housing in New York.
York up above 103rd Street. You know, when that was put up, this sounds like a sidebar, but when that was put up, that was put up with all the best intentions, which was to provide proper, clean housing for people who were struggling or people, you know, who, who needed subsidized housing. And it was all came from the right place. Now you drive by, it's just, it's the projects, right? It's just, it's just a disaster. So there's this, yes, they had this huge strike and yes, they got whatever on paper they got. But the unintended consequence is it gave the studios and the streamers a chance to, first of all, not spend any production money. So they saved all that money. And then recalibrate. And it's no coincidence that now it's like, let's maybe Warner's will join Paramount. Maybe Comcast Universal will join up with this one. They're, they're rethinking the whole thing now. And... Um, that's the unintended consequence of a labor strike. Um, businesses, it's going to come to a shock to people. Businesses have to make money. You know, they're, and, and share, these are private companies. And there's a big, strong, especially in the entertainment business, a big, strong socialist impulse um, that, you know, that this is all, you know, somehow for the worker. It's not. Now, we, we can decide in America not to have a capitalist society, and I, I think that's a fair conversation. But if, but if we are going to have privately held companies, they can do whatever they want. Yeah. It's, it's a business. Warner Brothers is there to make money. Yeah, and like I said, you know, you and I were kind of talking off camera. The audience is a beast that has to be continually fed. And there's a ton of money that has to be there to do that. And a lot of these companies are sitting on mountains of debt that they're just going to write off because there's no way they're going to be able to pay, you know, earn enough they're money not, to pay it off. They're not going to pay the writers and actors. That's a, that's a pipe dream. Look at Disney. Disney decided they weren't in the entertainment business anymore they decided they were in the social justice business. I don't know who there decided, but somebody decided that they had a mandate to change society. Not a good play for Disney. Not a good idea. Your you no, know, and I think that was a major failure that we saw this year alone. And for them to recover from that mistake... I mean, come on, you're making billions of dollars a year to promote the happiest place on earth. And you made the happiest place on earth not happy anymore. No, they're cranky. And, and he, <laughs> yeah, and here's the deal. The only thing that's going to make Bob Iger and the rest of the stockholders happy is that their little world is making money, and they found out real quick their world's not making any money right now. No, they, they, they forgot... In my opinion, they forgot who they are. They're a family entertainment company. You let the politicians change society. You know, you let that, somebody else does that. That's not your job. But I'm, a, I'm a not, listen, I'm an outlier in all this stuff. And I'll, I'll talk to you honestly, but you know, in, in Hollywood, 
people who are very careful about what they say, very careful, because this is like, there's one party. It's like, there's the, the party, like in the Soviet Union, you know, it's like you, you don't talk against the party or there's consequences. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. You know, to me, film should be entertaining for the audience. Plain and simple, nothing more. Make them feel good. Maybe you want to scare them with a horror movie or make a rom-com. It's entertainment, so entertain the audience. Yeah, but I'm all for artists, genuine artists, being supported because back in the 70s, you know, Sidney Lumet was making wildly socially conscious movies, The Pawnbroker and... Um, uh, Serpico and The Verdict, and these were powerful movies, but they were also cop movies and law. They were they were they worked as movies. So I'm all for the, a, a true artist expressing. I was just picking Disney in particular because of their brand, right? They have they they have a brand. And what they're doing is completely counterintuitive to their brand. I mean, with with Paramount or or I suppose even what used to be Fox, you know, those are legacy studios, and and there's always been a social justice element. Marty Ritt and Friedkin and all these great artists, but there's something about it coming from Disney that's uncomfortable for some reason. I don't know. No, no, you're right. They, they're, they're a brand. The others, Warner Brothers and Fox and Paramount, they're studios. So there's, it's a, it's a completely different thing. You know, it is. people. I mean, people collect Disney stuff. They got rooms in their house that has every Disney figurine. They want, they love that. They love the feeling when they used to, when they would go to the park and that vision has been dirtied, has been dragged through the mud? Unnecessarily. It, it's just, it just seems so unnecessary. Like, what did you get out of all this? I mean, if you have, if you have gay kissing and Buzz Lightyear, like, who wins? Like, I don't get, you know, that's No, fine. I get it. I get it. And, you know, but in the end, I'm just like, people, the film industry, just entertain us. That's all yeah. I want. When I sit down, I want to be entertained. Or be a good artist. Be a great artist. You know, be, I mean, we love having Spike Lee and we love having P.T. Anderson and we love having artists who are capable of taking the medium. And, uh, but yeah, I agree. I agree. I love these type of, those types of filmmakers that, you know, they, they raise the bar a bit. Yeah, um, make us think but, differently. But uh, I don't know. I think the very fact um, that Disney owns Fox pretty much tells you what's coming. I mean, I was at Fox. That's kind of my home for years. I was at Fox. I did Mark for Death there and Rapid Fire and Bones and Prison Break. And I was at Fox all the time. And that's a legacy studio. You know, that goes back to Daryl Zanuck and the founding fathers. 
and now it's part of Disney. It it just seems. I don't know. Well, it you know, I, I I I think back, and you know, I I miss the days, and I'm not going to call you know. To me, filmmaking is not simple. But I, I love the simplicity of a movie like Steven Spielberg's Duel. That stuff will entertain me forever. Yeah, it's just, it's old school suspense. Yeah, you know, he's the master. He's the master at that. And, um, you know, his movies, like everybody's, have changed over the years. As he's gotten older, he, he, he's made different movies. But, um, oh, I think Hollywood will find its way. I think it's just a reset. And I mentioned it in the book, it's always changing. So it, it, there's going to be a big reset, and we're in the middle of it now. And there's going to be four studios. My prediction: it'll be four studios and four networks, and that's your, and that'll be your content business. I think that's what's going to happen. It's um, all going to. Yeah, I have a tendency to agree with you there because you know because of the strikes, things are just going to only belong to a select few, and. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, I will tell you this right now, Dwight Little's memoir, still rolling inside the Hollywood Dream Factory, is not the glossy and glamorous look of working as a film director in Hollywood. It is the most truthful, transparent picture of what working in Tinseltown is like. And what we see on the silver screen doesn't show the hardships or the mishaps, the triumphs, the blood, the sweat, the tears, or dealing with Hollywood pencil pushers to get a film made, all with the hopes that the audience will like it. Still rolling inside the Hollywood Dream Factory is a breath of fresh air that removes the smoke and mirrors of filmmaking. So if you're an up-and-coming filmmaker, consider Dwight's memoir part of your learning process to toughen up your skin and even learn a few film tricks to make your next film better and how to deal with people the right way. Dwight, I've had a blast talking film with you today. I learned a lot. Oh, so nice for you to have me on your show. And uh, just showing interest in the book, I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. I Like I said, I read it from cover to cover. And uh, it's a must read, ladies and gentlemen. You've got to check out Dwight Little's book, Still Rolling, Inside the Hollywood Dream Factory. And you're going to kind of find out what that what it's going to take to reach that dream. But again, uh, for all of you ladies and gentlemen, thank you for uh, watching. But you can catch all the replays of our interviews with the top film directors like Dwight Little, as well as producers, screenwriters, actors. More on our YouTube channel, Bond on Cinema, as we were available on a dozen audio platforms as well. And again, for watching and listening. And as for me, I hope to see you at the movies.